Just uh, stay standing, would you? Let's just bow our heads in prayer as we come to uh, study God's Word. Lord, we come to you this morning. We have a desperate need to hear from you, that you would speak to us. Lord, there are all kinds of clamor, all kinds of voices, all kinds of ideas competing for the affections of our hearts, distractions and disturbances, all aimed seemingly at turning our ears away from you. But what we desire this morning, what we desire even now, in fact, what we desperately need is to hear your voice. So Lord, your servants are listening. Speak to us. Speak to us the very words of life. Lord, we, do, we cannot live by bread alone, but by the words that you give. And so speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Do take a seat. Good morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. So Hebrews chapter 8, that's page 1005, and um, I, uh, there's, you know, as we get into this text, let me just kind of give you the outline to, to kind of make that easy for us. So as you're looking at the text, it's pretty easy to divide the chapter into two. So verses 1 to 6, the the writer is going to answer the question, why is Jesus superior so, two questions. One first question, why is Jesus superior? That's verses 1 to 6. And then verses 7 to 13, so what? Like, what does his superiority bring us? So, uh, verses 1 to 6, why is Jesus superior? Number, and then uh, verses 7 to 13, the second question he answers, what does his superiority bring us? And so, um, you know, our style, my style, we'll just go through the text I'll read a bit, I'll talk a bit, we'll read a bit, I'll talk a bit, we'll pray, we'll get coffee. Does that sound good? So, um, this is what the writer of Hebrews says, verse 1. He says, now the point in what we are saying is this, or more accurately, you know, probably in the Greek, more accurately it reads, now this is the most important topic that needs discussing. Um, so then what is that topic? So what is the most important topic that he wants to discuss with us, that he's already discussed over the last seven chapters, what is the kind of go-to, take-home, main thing that he is talking about? Well, this is it, the rest of verse 1. He says, we, that's Christians, us, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, and not man. So notice that, um, that the text says that he, that is Jesus, has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So he's referring to, you know, the, the most exalted place, the most glorious place, the, the highest place that you can imagine and go higher than that. It's the place of greatest honor, the high priest sits, he says, alongside the majesty. He sits alongside God. And this is important because in the whole flow of the logic of the writer's text, he, he's making this argument 
well, why is Jesus superior? Why is, he, why is Jesus superior to Aaron? Why is he superior to Moses? Why is he superior to Melchizedek? Why is he superior to the law? Why is, why is Jesus superior? And the answer is because Aaron couldn't sit at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. Does that make sense? Like Moses couldn't do that. Um, no one else could do that. Satan tried to do it, and look at the kind of trouble he got into trying to do that. No one else could do that. Jesus alone could do that. And there are many ways, you know, to describe God, but I love how the writer describes God in this section. He calls him the majesty. Did you like that? Because that's like what he is. He is the majesty. I mean, you know, we could get away with all of the other ways to describe God, but I love this way. Jesus, the great high priest, he has sat down next to the majesty, sharing in that majesty. And you remember, it's what Daniel saw. Uh, Daniel saw several hundred years earlier in Daniel chapter 7 when he, he saw one like the Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days, sitting on the throne, receiving from the Ancient of Days glory and honor and power and authority and majesty and worship from all the earth. It's what Jesus prayed about in, in John chapter 17 as he prays his high priestly prayer. He prays to the Father and he says, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before you with, before the world existed. It's the same thing he's, he's talking about. It's what the early Christians sang about in, in Philippians chapter 2 uh, when they said that at the sound of his name, this is what Paul said, he said, at the sound of the name of his name, every knee in heaven and, ev- and, and in earth will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so the, the high priest, Jesus, is sitting at the right hand of the majesty, sharing in the glory that is his. And notice it says there in verse 2 that he says, he is a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. And so um, just in the previous chapter, the writer had previously said in verse 25 that he, that is Jesus, always lives to make intercession for us, which, which means that he continues to do this for us today. Um, we are guaranteed heaven because Jesus is already there ministering for us. He is speaking good. He is speaking favor for his people to the Father. And notice that actually that the, right, the, the, the writer says there in verse 1, uh, just backtrack a little bit, he says that we have, and, and just circle those two words, we have such a high priest, which means Jesus is our possession, we have. Uh, he said there in Hebrews chapter 4, and this is just kind of my paraphrase, but in Hebrews chapter 4, he says, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. So let us then, if that is true, if we do have, and we have Christ as our possession, what is the outcome? What are we supposed to do? We, we are supposed to, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 6, he says, uh, verse 19, we have this as our sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. And, and so this is... Exactly what the writer is kind of building on. We have 
this high priest. Now let me ask you a quick question. Can you tell me about a high priest who can match him? Can you tell me about a hope that is surer than a high priest like this? The high priest who even now, at this current very moment, is sitting as king, enthroned at the right hand of the majesty, who never speaks negatively of you, always lifts you up, always speaks well of you to the Father. A high priest who is also our possession. Do you know one? Do you have one? Do you have him as your possession today? Do you know this Jesus that's been described in this passage? Well, look, the writer continues there in verse 3, and he says this, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. And so, you know, the, the role in the Old Testament, the role of the the role of the function of the high priest was there to really go into the, the temple and um, bring gifts and bring sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. And so Jesus as high priest, he's saying, must also uh, have gifts and sacrifices to offer and a sanctuary in which to offer them. And of course, this points candidly and most directly uh, towards the cross, doesn't it? Where Jesus offered the sacrifice of himself on our behalf. And then in verse 4 and in verse 5, the, the writer really calls us to respond to this truth. He kind of uses verse 4, 5, and actually verse 6 as kind of like a bridge. He's answered the question, well, why is Jesus superior? Well, this is the reason Jesus is superior, and he's told us. And then verses 4, 5, and 6, he says, you've got to do something about that. You can't just kind of like, well, yeah, okay, Jesus is superior, and then it not affect your life. And so this is what he says. Well, now, verse 4, if he were on earth, that's Jesus, if Jesus was on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. And so look, uh, what that means is simply that if Jesus was alive right now, or if he'd been alive when this would been written, uh, he wouldn't allow to be a priest because he wasn't from the right tribe. He was from the tribe of Judah. The priestly tribe was the tribe of Levi. And verse 5 helps us kind of understand why. He says, they, that is the priests, the earthly priests who offer gifts, serve a copy and shadow. Just circle those two words. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, the tabernacle, you remember there in the wilderness, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything a according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So pause there. What he's saying is this. He's saying that the systems of sacrifice, the systems of offering, the system of temple worship were a copy and they were a shadow of the true sacrifice and the true worship that was coming in the person of Jesus. And because they were more concerned with the copy and the shadow than the real thing, They missed out on the benefits that comes with the real thing. So this is the warning. The writer is saying, look, respond to this. Respond to this now. Don't just think about the copy. Don't just think about the shadow. Now the reality has come. Be more concerned in the reality. Does that make sense? Uh, Let me see if I can give you an example. And um, obviously I prepped for this. This is not just an example off the cuff. Uh, I don't always do this. But here I have a, a, a photo of my wife. She is the most incredible person I've ever met. Oh, and of course, I married her, right? So that, that stands to reason. And so um, I have this, this photo of uh, my, my wife. It's a copy. It's not a real thing, right? Um, 
I, I, I hate being away from my wife. Um, I, uh, I arrived here at the festival on Thursday. She arrived on Sunday. That Thursday, Friday, Saturday, they were miserable days for me. You know what I'm saying? You know, I'd call every morning and every evening. I wasn't being romantic or caring. Uh, well, I was. She was just checking in to make sure I was surviving, you know. Uh, she was just checking in to make sure I hadn't done anything stupid yet. Um, and, and so, but look, what, how, how ridiculous would this be if, if I'm kind of walking around with my photo and, you know, the, 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 I'm just in awe of, of this, this photo. And, and imagine if I'm waiting on Sunday and I'm waiting at the entrance and you know, I'm waiting for a car to pull in and I see a car that looks like her car and my heart starts beating faster. I kind of get sweaty palms. I'm getting excited. My wife's finally here and, and, and it's not that car. So I'm like, oh, no, I've got to wait. And then, you know, I play that kind of mind game that I know that you play as well. Um, it's going to be the third car that arrives. <laughs> you know, one, two, three. I mean, tenth car. Uh, four. Five. And, and then she arrives, and the car arrives, and I kind of walk up to the car, and my heart is beating fast, and she gets out of the car, but instead of jumping into the car and embracing her, which would be slightly awkward, but it, you know, I think I'd win points. Um, imagine if I just kind of ran up to the car, looked in the car, saw my wife, and figured, I have my photo. And I just kind of walk away with my photo. And I'm like, it's me and my photo. I'm happy. I don't think my wife would do, be too pleased. I think, in fact, some of my friends would probably offer us counseling. <laughs> and probably quite rightly. And so this is exactly what the writer is saying. He's saying, who would do that? You think that's pretty strange? That Jesus is here and all you're interested in is the fake stuff, the copy stuff, the, the stuff that's not real, the shadow stuff. The priests did exactly that. They were clinging to the copy, the image, the photo of the real thing, the sacrifices, the temple, the the ritual, and rejecting the reality of those things in the person of Jesus. And all the time Jesus was on earth, you remember what Jesus was warning? He was refuting and he was arguing with those who had made following God something that wasn't real. He was arguing with them about making something about God that was fake. And he went into the temple, do you remember? He went into the temple twice and he overturned those temples and he rebuked the Pharisees for looking holy while all the time denying God. And look, listen, Jesus isn't too happy about fake today either, is he? I mean, he's not ecstatic about that. Uh, One of of my favorite um, preachers, uh, Charles Spurgeon, he said this. He said, if Christ is not all to you, he is nothing to you. He will never go into partnership as a part saviour of men. If he be something, he must be everything. And if he not be everything, he is nothing to you. And, And the writer is warning us, saying that the only right response to the truth about who Jesus is is to receive Jesus himself. Not a copy, not a fake, not a shadow. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13, do you remember? He said that the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and he bought it. Do that. Sell all that you have. 
and you embrace this pearl of great price, Jesus, the great high priest and mediator, because he is such a great high priest that you can't live without him and you dare not try. Abandon all, forsake all, consider everything lost for the unsurpassed greatness of knowing him. And when you do, you will know life. You will have life. And now look, for the rest of this passage, that's really the point. Because we have such a superior high priest, we also have a superior covenant. So question, why is Jesus superior? Answer, because he is the only one who is seated at the right hand of the majesty ministering for our good, who is given as our possession and has offered the one true sacrifice for sins. Great. What? So what? What does that bring us? What does his superiority bring us? That's the next question. Look at verse 6. In which now the writer brings this whole argument to a conclusion. Greek scholar Kenneth Wiest says that verse 6 is the most important verse in the whole of Hebrews. So with that, let's just look at, see what he says. Verse 6, but as it is Christ. Now I love that, don't you? So far it's been, what well, Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better. And he, we've, we've seen all of these problems and all of these solutions. And then he gets to this verse 6. Again, the most important verse potentially in the whole of Hebrews. And he says, but as it is Christ. Jesus is the answer. But Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So, the writer is moving from focusing on Jesus to now what Jesus brings. And the, and the writer says that the ministry that Jesus brings is a new and is a better covenant. It's a new and better way to have a relationship with God, a, a relationship by faith. And now listen, 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 listen. Purely based on self-interest, this is a text we want to lean into a little bit. Would you agree? It, the writer is saying, look, there's something better for you. Whoever you are reading this, there's something better for you, so listen carefully. So purely on the basis of self-interest, we want to figure out, well, what is better for us? I want to know this answer. And what he's saying is this, there is a new and better way, and it's for our good. Well, let's delve into what these things are. Verse 7, he says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them. So look, look, just pause there. This, this, first, this covenant that he's talking about is the Mosaic covenant. The giving of the law, Exodus chapter 20 on Sinai. It's the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments, and all of the other commandments that came um, with that. And so that's the, 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 the first covenant that actually he's referring to. It's not the first covenant that we see in the Bible, but this is the first covenant as opposed to the old covenant, new covenant um, in that respect. And so notice he says there in verse 8 that it wasn't that the first covenant or the old covenant was a problem. He doesn't say that it was the first covenant was at fault. 
It's not the law that's the problem. It's just that we were unable to uphold our end of the bargain. He doesn't say the law is the problem. He says, we're the problem. And we're the problem. He describes the fault then in verses 8 and 9. And, and he quotes um, the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 31. This is uh, Jeremiah 31 now. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the, the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue. And so that's the fault. They did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. And so the writer now says that you, you, see, the superi- you, see, you see the superiority of Jesus by examining what Jesus brings. And in verse 6, again, that pivotal verse, the writer has said, and just kind of flick back to that verse, he says that this covenant is better. Why? Because it's based on better promises. That's why. And so the question then would be, and it's a good question, and I'm glad you've asked that question, well, what are those promises? If, if it's based on better promises, well, what are those promises? Well, here they are. Verse 10 tells us, and there are four of them. Firstly, we have the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing, that this new covenant that Jesus brings that's different from the old covenant is the Holy Spirit. Verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write on them uh, and write them on their hearts. Now look, here's the problem. You ever sung that hymn, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love? And isn't that just true? That there's a, there's, when we sing that, there's, there's something that resonates in our hearts. Prone to leave the God I love. Prone to wander. You and I, at our core, at best, are rebels. We're rebels. If there's a way to get out of doing something or doing that thing our own way, we will find it or we will not do it at all. Even in our passive state, we're like the sheep that goes astray, aren't we? And this promise to write the law in our hearts and to write the law in our minds is nothing less than the gift of the Holy Spirit to us to solve the problem of rebellion. Under the old covenant, you remember, um, the people had had the written law to remind them of what was right and wrong. And God took, um, you know, those tablets of stone and he wrote the law on those tablets of stone. But now the soul of man becomes God's writing tablet. I I like how Puritan Henry Scalgo writes it. He says, it is the life of God in the soul of man. The life of God in the soul of man. What does that mean? Well, it means this, that God in his grace and God in his goodness has provided a way in which we can follow him. He knows that our walk will be less than perfect. Right? Our walk is less than perfect. Would you agree? Some of you aren't so sure. Some of you are like, yes. Our walk is less than perfect. My walk is less than, um, less than perfect. And so 
he provides in his goodness and in his grace a way for us to have a constant, still, small voice that not only reminds us constantly that we are loved, but calls us back to love him back. The Holy Spirit not only says to us continually, daily, you are loved, you are loved, you are loved, but also reminds us, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? That is the role, that is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And look, the old covenant could never do that. The old covenant could never show us the loveliness of God. It couldn't do that. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, now that he has made us know his love in the Spirit. And so because the life of God is in us, in the person of the Holy Spirit, we want friendship with God and we long for God. That's not you. When you wake up in the morning and you recognize that your heart is dry and you call out for God, that's not you. That's the Holy Spirit in you. That's the life of God in you. When you think about what you, you should do and then you think about not doing that thing and there's that little voice going, no, no, Simon, come on. That's, that's, that's not you. That's not yourself going, rebuking yourself. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the life of God in you, continually reminding you. You're loved. Do you love God? You're loved. Do you see the love of God for you? And the Holy Spirit is continually reminding us of the loveliness of God. And so now, we don't please God. We don't want to please God because we have some kind of external force that's pressurizing to do it, us to do that like the law or people reminding us like the priests. Now, we have the life of God in us, the law written on our hearts and on our minds, reminding us from the inside. And we want to please God, not, just, not so that we can get something from Him. We want to please God just because of who He is. Not from what we get or what we want to avoid. We want to please God because of who he is. And in doing so, he calls us to be conformed to the image of Christ. You see, the evidence of this life and the work of the Holy Spirit, how do we measure that? You know, one of the things I love... And I'm a musician, and I, I, I guess maybe I, can, maybe I can say this with hand on heart. You know, um, one of the things that I, I love is music. One of the things I love is worship. One of the things I love is praise. And, um, you know, there's a tendency for us to be very, and I'm not knocking this. You know, I, I, I want to encourage this as much as I can. But one of the things that there is is that encouragement to have this kind of outward display in our worship and then attribute that to the Holy Spirit. And that may or may not be the case. And I, the jury's out. It's just, you know, whatever, right? But listen, the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit isn't measured by high, how high you can jump in praise or how high you can lift your hands in worship. The evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in your life is by how straight you can walk in obedience to God and His voice. Right? 
And God in his grace and God in his goodness knows we are like sheep who go astray. And he has provided a voice, a life in us that we will not just hear his voice, but then we're empowered to obey his voice. And he has given that to each and every one of us. That is a good news promise, isn't it? To combat that rebellion that is in us, God in his goodness says, I'll help you with that. Well, praise God for that. That's a promise that the the superiority of Jesus brings to us. Secondly, what else? Well, the second promise we have here in our text solves the problem of fear. This is such a huge issue. I wish I had time to really develop it, but I don't. But this is something I hope that you will go and meditate on. This second promise solves the problem of fear. And so God promises Because he knows that we are a fearful people and that God is a holy God and we really have no right to approach God in our own strength, in our our own flesh. We We have no ability to do that. He is a consuming fire, right? And so we are a fearful people, but yet God promises in this new covenant a loving relationship with God and full access to God. And I just so appreciate how the writer tells us that. This is how he tells us here in this verse. He says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Don't you love that? I will be their God, they shall be my people. And in these words, God claims us as his possession and he invites us to do likewise and claim him as ours he's saying that God has set his love on you not because of you but because of God does that make sense that God loves us not because of us but because of him he says I will be their God And they will be my people. And God's love for us. And we need to be a people, a Christian church who are shouting this from the very highest places across the land. That God's love, his love for us, his possession of us. I want to use this word is unbreakable. Unbreakable. There is not a force in the universe. There is not a force in heaven. There is not a force in hell that will force him to break this promise. This commitment to be our God and we will be his people is unshakable and is unstoppable. The the apostle Paul said that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And, And if your salvation was based on effort and was based on goodness, we'd all be in trouble, wouldn't we? If our salvation was contingent on what I can do for God and how, I, how much I can impress God with my works and how much I want to work so that he would accept me, listen, then if that is true, then your continued access to God and possession of him is based on the same. But we don't have a gospel like that. 
We have a gospel that says that God has set his eye on you, not because of you, but because of God. And that continued relationship with him is not based on you, but it's based on God. Do you see how that works? It's not like God says, well, okay, I understand the salvation is all of me and I'll save these people, but after that, it's really up to them. Aren't you glad that that's not the case? I mean, how many of us would be standing right now, right? And we would have fallen out of the first, wouldn't we? But God doesn't say that. He says that your salvation and your continued salvation and your conti- my continued work in you is all of me. And I'm going to do that work and that's my promise. And, and you have uh, me as your possession. I have you as my possession. And look, look, can I just kind of bring this home and discuss with you kind of what it kind of means? It, it means that in the context of fear, that there is none. Because he hasn't given us a spirit of fear right? He's given us a spirit of love. And so that we have no fear of rejection. Why? Well, there's nothing in us that would mean that he would reject us because it's all based on him. There's nothing about abandonment here. There's nothing about rejection. There's nothing about being, you know, cast away. There's no fear of rejection. There's no fear of being abandoned because actually it didn't work like that in the first place and it doesn't work like that now. He doesn't look at us and go, well, Simon, I, I found this favorable in you, and so therefore today I'm going to accept you, but be, you know, just be on your toes because tomorrow it might not be that way. He doesn't say that. You can come to God with all of your baggage in the first place, and God says, okay, I understand that you have some baggage, I understand that you have some brokenness, but I'm not going to leave you like that. I'm going to do a work in you, and I'm going to continue to do a work in you. Isaiah says that a bruised reed, he's not going to break off. He says a smoking flax, he's not going to, you know, take it. I don't know whether God has fingers, but he's not going to, you know, take his fingers and wet them and just and snuff that candle out. He never does that. Why? I will be their God. And they will be my people. What a fantastic promise that is. Thirdly, because time is running out, here is the promise. Thirdly, in this next verse, in verse 11, uh, that there is uh, immediate fellowship with God. And uh, I'll, I'll just leave this one very quickly because I want to camp out on the fourth one very quickly. This is, what, um, uh, this is what he says. This is what the writer says. There in verse 11, he says, And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, And each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. What does that mean? Well, it simply means this, that knowing God isn't reserved for the special club, the special elite, that you have to get some kind of special pass for. Knowing God can be the privilege of all people. Knowing God can be the privilege of all people, regardless of heritage, regardless of wealth, regardless of race, regardless of age, regardless of gender. That deserves an amen. Fourthly, fourth promise really quickly. The writer now shows us in verse 12 that the problem of guilt and the problem of shame are gone because God promises in the new covenant to remove sin and the knowledge of sin. Verse 12, he says... For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. 
How can we enjoy fellowship with the majesty? How can we enjoy fellowship with the holy God? Answer, because God promises, and this is a better promise, that I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Notice that twofold promise here is not only to be merciful to us, but that God, so that God forgives us of our sins, but also that God no longer remembers our sins. That, that not only are our sins forgiven, but they're also forgotten. Now listen, I can't tell you how freeing this is. And you know, we, we, we don't forgive and forget like that, do we? If we forgive, we like to bear a grudge, don't we? And we like to bring it up next time it happens again, don't we? Do you remember when? Oh yeah, but I'm sorry. Yeah, but this is the, this is the thousandth time you've done this. Right? We do that. Oh, but Jesus doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. Look, look, look at what he says. I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sin no more. It's almost too good to be true, isn't it? That God would forget our sins, not only cleanse us, but then as if we haven't sinned. I'm going to tell you a story. Amy Carmichael, the famous missionary, once had a conversation with a young man and, uh, who had you know, wronged her in the past. And unfortunately, we were all fallen. We were, none of us are perfect. Sometimes that happens, doesn't it? And, and this, this young man had, had, had wronged Amy in the past, and um, she was at a speaking engagement or something, and he approached her and um, said, do you, do you remember, Amy, do you remember me? And she's like, I remember you. I remember, I remember who you are. And uh, the, the young man said, do you remember how I wronged you and the things that I did to you? And against you, do you remember those things? And Amy's response was so telling. She said, no, I distinctly remember forgetting. And so it is with God. If we ever look to God and say, Lord, do you remember when? Because we all have that. Sometimes we just get down, don't we? We get down on our own sin. And sometimes we beat ourselves up about our sins. Lord, I've done it again. Do you remember when that happened last? Oh, Lord, I just, do you remember when? If, if ever we get to that place and we're, we're saying, Lord, do you remember when the Lord would turn to us and he would say, no, I distinctly remember forgetting. I distinctly remember forgetting. And you may be struggling this morning with what you've done in the past and the guilt and shame that every, every day weighs you down. Can I encourage you this morning that God's promises are not only to forgive you of your sin, but to forget your sin and to no longer hold it against you? That he is distinctly remembered to forget. Because that sin and that shame and and the, the guilt that you have was all taken from you at the cross. And it was placed on Jesus He bore our guilt and he bore our shame. But listen, that's not enough. He then placed his life inside of us. This is the new covenant. This is really what the new covenant really adds up to. Do you remember that story in John chapter 3 when Jesus told Nicodemus, or he's having this conversation with this Nicodemus man and he's in the middle of the night 
And um, he said to Nicodemus, listen, Nicodemus, what we, what we need is not new laws. It's not new institutions. What we need is new men and we need new women. We need new lives. And Nicodemus was like, what? Can a man be born again? Can a man enter into his mother's womb and be born again? He understood how ridiculous that statement of Jesus was. How do you generate new people? I mean, look, haven't we all sometimes let the present become something other than what we wanted it to be? You know, even the, the most confident amongst us, if we have any sensitivity to sin at all, there are times when you wish you could just turn back the clock and live through that moment again, aren't there? When that relationship with such and such a person was, was less than pure, was less than holy, and you wish you could just undo it, or, or when you, you know, you, <laughs> this is not you, this is me, uh, when you were such an idiot, when I was such an idiot, and, and you handled something in a way in your heart, you're just kind of reaching for the pause button and the rewind so you can just go back and undo it, but you can't change it. History is done, it's written. It's why Tennyson said, ah, for a man to arise in me, that the man I am may they cease to be. But here, why is this new covenant so in, wonderful and so important? Well, it's because Jesus promises that you can be a new person after all. You can start over. And it's not through being better behaved. It's not through keeping rules and laws. Why? Because your heart is going to betray you at some point. You can't keep it. You can't do that. I mean, where in the world did we get the idea... So that so long as uh, we are doing what God tells us to do, even though our hearts are far from him, that that is something to be proud of. Doing the right thing with the wrong heart doesn't demonstrate rightness. If anything, doing the right thing with the wrong heart reveals our desperate need for a new heart and a new birth and the life of God to be in us, doesn't it? And this is why the covenant, the new covenant is so much better. Now listen, let me close out by just saying these two things. If you don't know Jesus this morning, if you have not come to know the joy of making God your possession, if you have not come to know the joy of having your sins forgiven and forgotten, Jesus offers himself to you today. He offers himself to you with better promises in a new relationship through a new birth so that you can really start over again. And he will empower you to live for him and he will indwell you so that every single day he will remind you, you are loved, you are loved, you are loved. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And it won't be a burden because Jesus says, come to me, come to me. My, my burden is light. And he will begin to show you and you will begin to know and rely upon the love that will never fail you, not once. If you're a Christian here this morning, can I encourage you, enjoy him. Delight in him. Embrace him. Be confident of his love for you. Be confident of your standing 
with the Father because we have a mediator who ever lives to intercede for us at the right hand of the majesty. Shall we pray together? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that we have now these better promises. Promises where you have said that you would be our God and we would be yours. Promises where you said that you would fill us, that we would know and hear your voice speaking to us. Promises that say that we are completely forgiven, fully, forever. And we stand in your presence holy so that we can enjoy you, so that there is no fear, because perfect love casts out fear. And Lord, I want to pray for us this morning, Lord, that for those who don't know you, Lord, would this morning be the time where you reveal yourself to those people in a very new and fresh way? Lord, would you remind them that you came to this earth to die for them so that there is no guilt and there is no shame, that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ. And you call us, to embrace you and to pursue you and to love you and enjoy you. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word. May your spirit water it to our hearts. Lord, may you empower us to live this out day by day for your glory. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Guys, we are... um, having a 15-minute break. I want to encourage you. There are some questions coming on the screen. Please talk about those questions. Please talk about those questions amongst yourselves. And also, look, if you want prayer, if the, the Lord has been speaking to you this morning about anything, there's a Connect team at the back. There's a Connect team down here on your left. They would love to pray with you. And just spend this 15 minutes, grab some coffee, grab some prayer, and we'll come back with uh, a little bit of worship in a little while. God bless you guys.